Go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. We are going to be in verses, well, actually the whole thing. 1 through 39. Whoa. <laughs> Funny you should say that. So I was, I was reading this, and the word woe comes up several times. In fact, there's a portion of this called the seven woes. And I thought, whoa, that's like the sound you make when, you, so I've heard, when you stop a horse, right? You're like, whoa. And it dawned on me, I think yesterday, that that's actually spelled different. But I it still works, right? It still works. This idea that, that a woe is a pronouncement of judgment, And that's what Jesus is doing in this chapter. He is pronouncing judgment on the religious leaders and he is not going to hold back at all. And I thought as we read this, there's a danger. There's a danger that, that number one, we can say, oh, those foolish Pharisees and religious leaders, so glad we're not like them. And by saying so, we become exactly like them. And so we need to hit the brakes when we come to a passage like this and not just look at those Pharisees and and think about how awful they are, but we need to go further. There's another step that we need to be careful of. We need to consider who we're following. And that's important because Jesus is using this passage to warn the crowds. It's interesting, he's pronouncing judgment on the Pharisees, but he's actually speaking to the crowds and his disciples. And he's warning them, be careful not to follow these people. So we need to listen to this and think, who am I following? And am I following people like this, or am I following people who are truly focused on God? So we need to hit the brakes with who we're following and say, is this person truly focused on Jesus Christ? But here's another place we need to hit the brakes. We can't just live out a passage like this by judging others all the time. We now, finally, we need to look in our own hearts and say, how do I do the same things? So we're going to ask two questions throughout this passage, and that is, who are we following And how are we doing the same things? And those are two areas that when we see a pronouncement of judgment, we need to hit the brakes and take stock of our own hearts. Now to set the context here, this is the final week before Jesus goes to the cross and dies in our place. Everything is leading up to that. He has gone into Jerusalem very publicly. He has been welcomed as the coming king. The Messiah, the crowds have have shouted out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he went into the temple, he cleansed the temple, he exercised his authority over the temple and the leaders of the temple were kind of like, who does this guy think he is? And Jesus was sort of like, funny you should ask. And he tells them who he is, but they won't accept it. He has this Q&A time, which sounds really tame, but it wasn't, at the end of chapter 22 where the Pharisees come to him with questions and they're testing him. They're trying to get Jesus in trouble with the authorities, either the religious authorities or the Roman authorities. They just want Jesus to be in trouble so he'll be taken out of the picture. And Jesus answers their questions in a way that silences them. And then he ends chapter 22 by Jesus asking them a question. And the heart of the question is, who is the Messiah? And if I could change that a little bit, the heart of Jesus' question is really challenging the Pharisees, who am I? 
It's the son of God saying, you need to make a decision about who I am. We need to make a decision about who Jesus is. And it was this point, their refusal to accept who Jesus is, that marks them as people that are waiting for judgment. That's hard. But we need to listen to these woes. We need to listen to this judgment. And we need to hit the brakes in our own lives to look at how we do similar things. So let's pick up the passage in verses 1 through 12. He, he starts by pointing out the absolute hypocrisy of these Pharisees and scribes. He's going to call these teachers of the law and the Pharisees hypocrites six times in this chapter. He also calls them blind guides and then snakes and a brood of vipers. Jesus is not holding back. He is absolutely condemning these people. You know, sometimes we have this picture of, well, if we love Jesus, we just, Jesus just loved everybody and he just accepted everybody. And that's true. Anybody can come to Jesus. But these people weren't coming to Jesus. They said, no, I'm good. I'm righteous. I'm more important than you. I've got all of this figured out. And it is for those people that Jesus has some pretty harsh words. He's going to call them hypocrites. And in verse 5, he says, everything they do is done for people to see. Let's pick up the text in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. So right away, we're introduced to these Pharisees and teachers of the law, or some translations have scribes. It's the same thing. Many of these people would have sat on what was known as the Sanhedrin. This was this ruling council of Jewish elders that kind of oversaw all of um, Jewish politics and Jewish religion. It was all kind of mixed for them. The scribes would have known the law. They would have correctly, or, or at least they hoped, correctly interpreted and applied in every nitpicky detail. The Pharisees we've talked about before. They were a group that, that came to influence during the time between the Old and the New Testament. And their goal was to bring the people back to God and purify the people of all unrighteousness to get them to follow the law. And the intent was, let's follow the law so that Jesus will send the Messiah. Let's get the people ready for the Messiah. If we can be righteous enough and perfect enough in following the law, then the Messiah will come. Their intentions started out as good. Unfortunately, as what happens all too often, is that they started taking God's word and putting their own logic above it. They said, okay, if we're not to work on the Sabbath, let's lay out a distance that people can walk on the Sabbath. And they came up with their own rules on everything that were higher than God's law to make extra sure that they were being righteous and religious. And by doing so, they started pointing to their own authority instead of to the authority of God. 
And Jesus says they sit in Moses' seat. And what that means is that they are the people that were proclaiming the Old Testament law. Moses came down from the mountain. He proclaimed what God had given him, the Old Testament law, to the people. The Pharisees and scribes are doing that in Jesus' day. They're proclaiming what God has said. And Jesus says, that's good. You should follow that. You should follow them as they proclaim the word of God. But there's a lot of sarcasm behind what Jesus is saying. Because what he's going to say is, don't actually follow them because they're not doing what they're saying at all. Be careful. Be careful to do what they tell you, but be really careful not to actually do what they do. Now, it's interesting because he calls them out as hypocrites. And yet, I've talked about this before. If you think about our definition of hypocrisy, hypocrisy is usually thought of as living differently than what you believe. I believe I should love people, but I act in a hateful, harmful, hurtful manner. That's hypocrisy. You believe one thing, but you actually do something else. That is part of what biblical hypocrisy is. But it helps to expand the definition a little bit because you see the Pharisees did actually live out what they believed for the most part. They believed in following the law and they did it in their own lives. They believed in all these nitpicky rules. And as far as we can tell, most of them lived that way. They weren't really open to the charge of people saying, oh, you don't really do what you say. For the most part, they did. But here's where we get to the crux of their problem. See, the biblical word hypocrisy, I think it's hypocrites in Greek, it literally means actor. This is what they would call people that acted up on a stage. The Greeks like theater, and those up on the stage were the hypocrites. How do you like that if you're an actor? A bunch of hypocrites. Why? Because they were pretending, yes, but they were performing for an audience. And that gets to the heart of Jesus' judgment on these Pharisees. It's not just that they weren't doing the right thing. It's that they were performing for the wrong audience. They were doing it for the wrong reasons. Even if they did the right things, they were doing it so that people would see and go, oh, you're so amazing. You're so holy and righteous. I wish I could be like the Pharisees. They're hypocrites in that sense. They're just trying to perform. Now we get to some of the problems with the Pharisees and what made them hypocrites. In verse 4, it says, They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. And again, we, we could take this as, well, they have all these rules, but they're not willing to follow them. But that's not really the picture we get of Pharisees. They did follow their rules. So what's Jesus talking about? They were more concerned with proclaiming the rules and judging people for whether or not they kept the rules than actually helping people to live the way they wanted them to live. They had reduced their role to judges rather than shepherds. It was enough of them to go, oh, you're wrong. Oh, you're wrong. Oh, you're wrong. And people are going, I want to do the right thing. I want to follow God. And the Pharisees, well, it's too bad. You're wrong. They were so focused on judgment. Look at 5 through 7. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. 
They live their lives on a stage for others to see, for others to look at them and see how righteous they are. God had given his people some reminders in the Old Testament to keep their focus on him, some very practical, tangible things. Um, One of them was this phylactery. It was like a little box. um, I believe it was primarily made out of leather or tanned animal hide of some sort. And it was just tiny, and they would put a tiny little scroll in there with a bit of scripture on it, probably the Shema, about just how great God is. And then they were to wear that on their forehead so that everywhere they went, they would feel that. It was kind of like a wedding ring, right? When you walk around, you can kind of feel it. You feel it when you grab things. It's just that constant reminder on your finger of... I'm tied to somebody. For them, it was this thing of, I am supposed to keep my focus on God. So the Pharisees were like, yes, we're going to keep our focus on God. In fact, we keep our focus on God more than anybody else. So we're going to make that little box on our forehead that much bigger. So that when people look at it, they go, oh, you must be truly holy. And the tassels on their garments, God commanded them to put these tassels on and a certain type of thread to be in it. And again, it was the symbolism of reminding them who God is and what the law said and how they were to live. It was a good thing. The Pharisees had these arguments. There are actually two different schools of Pharisees with different opinions on how long tassels should be. It's the kind of thing they sat around and argued about. The tassels on their garments. And he's saying you're so focused on how other people see you that you're missing the point. You want to be honored instead of truly following God. That's how they were not living out what they believed. They believed in the greatness of God. They taught the greatness of God, but they lived out their own greatness instead of God's. Look at verses 8 through 12. But you are not to be called rabbi. For you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Sometimes this passage is used to say all titles are wrong. The problem is later on in the passage, Jesus calls people teachers. He actually says, I'm sending teachers to you. So it wasn't wrong to call people teachers. People called Jesus rabbi. He didn't, and again, at that, he is the great rabbi. I get that. But at that time, he wasn't trying to claim those things, but he didn't correct them. People were called rabbi. It was their job. It was their role. The problem here is that these people, these religious leaders, clung to their title. They wanted that title. They need that title to be able to say, you must submit to me. You must do what I say because I am so important. They believed, ultimately, and they probably wouldn't say this, but that that great position, that high position, even gave them an authority equal to or higher than God. Ultimately, because they were putting their own ideas above God's word. And Jesus says, you're not supposed to seek that. You're supposed to follow humility. Seek to serve. Throughout the Old Testament, there was this idea that the people of God had been saved by God in a way they could never have saved themselves. They were enslaved, stuck, absolutely hopeless in Egypt. And God saves them. He brings them out. And he says, now I've saved you. Here's how you live in relationship with me. And it was all God-focused. And it was all loving and serving one another. 
When we come to the New Testament, the gospel of Jesus Christ says we cannot save ourselves. God must do it. And he does it through Jesus Christ. So how foolish it is then to say, look at me, look how great I am. And that's what the Pharisees are doing. These religious leaders need to hit the brakes. And we need to hit the brakes when we're looking at hypocrisy in our own lives or someone that we're following. These religious leaders are far more concerned with their own image and reputation than they are with the glory of God. We need to look at who we're following. No one is perfect. No one. But any religious leaders need to be able to admit that they are not perfect and should ultimately point to the perfection of Christ, not to themselves. So we need to hit the brakes and ask, who are we following? But we also need to look at our own lives. How do I do the same thing? How do I serve in church? Is it because I want people to see what I'm doing and how great it is? And I get it. We all want some recognition. We want the pat on the back. Hey, you're doing a good job. But we should serve to serve and to bring glory to God first and foremost. We need to be careful to hit the brakes on hypocrisy. And now we get to the seven woes. And I'm calling this seven reasons to hit the brakes. And I want you, as we go through these, to think about your own heart and your own lives. Where do I need to hit the brakes? How am I doing these very things? Now, the NIV uses the word woe, these seven woes. Jesus says over and over again, woe to you, teachers of the law. That word woe means watch out, be careful, judgment is coming. You are in big trouble. Look out. It's a pronouncement of coming judgment with an idea of calling someone to repentance. Stop the way you're going. Stop doing these things. And it's telling other people, stop following them. They're going the wrong direction. Woe to them. These seven woes, it's it's a list. Jesus is just doing kind of a bulleted sermon here. Seven bullet points in his sermon. And it's interesting because these seven things has what, uh, what's called a chiastic structure. Mitch has talked about this in, in his Hebrews class. It's one of these nerdy, you know, theological things. But, but stick with me. Chiastic structure. So there's seven things. And the beginning, the first one, and the last one have a lot to do with each other. The second one and the second to last one have a lot to do with each other. And if you go down the list, you get to the middle one. In this case, it's the fourth one. And that's like the focal point. So at the beginning and end of this list, we have the truth that they are completely missing out on who Jesus is. They're missing it. And in the middle, verse 4, Jesus says, you don't understand scripture at all. You've missed the whole point. So let's look at these seven woes. And let's understand that the point here is that when we reject Christ, we will focus on the wrong things. And when we focus on the wrong things, we will be rejecting Christ. That's a time to say, whoa. Let's stop, let's pause, and say, I need to check my own heart. The first one 
in verse 13. We need to hit the brakes when anything is more important than Jesus Christ. Look at verse 13. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Now, how are they shutting the door to the kingdom of heaven? Well, who's the king? Jesus. And and Jesus has made it clear throughout the gospel of Matthew, wherever the king is, the kingdom has come. John came on the scene, John the Baptist, and he announced the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus comes on the scene. The kingdom of heaven is near. Why? Because the entrance to the kingdom is through the king, Jesus. Because he saves us. He changes us from the inside out so that we can live in his kingdom. So how are the Pharisees and these other religious leaders shutting the door to the kingdom of heaven? They refuse to accept who Jesus is. And they are literally leading others away from Jesus. They're trying to trap Jesus and make him look bad. They're judging anyone that follows Jesus. You don't know what you're talking about. They're so concerned with their own authority. They won't let others follow Jesus. And they refuse to follow him themselves. And what's so shameful about this is that Jesus makes it abundantly clear that the entirety of the Old Testament points to Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And these men who think they know Scripture so well have completely missed the point. They believe their power and their positions are more important than Jesus Christ. So we need to hit the brakes. We need to ask when we follow people, are they pointing to Christ or themselves? Are they keeping the glory of Christ ultimate in everything they do? Or or are they pointing to themselves? And we need to check our own hearts. Are we living for the glory of God? Are we living because we've been saved by Jesus Christ, pointing others to him or to how great and awesome we are? Second, well, we need to hit the brakes when personal followers are more important than followers of Christ. Look at verse 15. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Ouch. These men prided themselves on leading people to God. They prided themselves on leading people to follow the right way, the holy way, the true way, the just way. Their way was the only way. Anybody that interpreted scripture other than their way was wrong. And Jesus says, you're leading people the wrong way. Instead of leading them to life, you're actually leading them to death. They wanted to make followers of themselves. They wanted the people to look like them and act like them rather than following who God is. Again, we need to watch who we follow. Do we point to people that say, you just have to be like me, you have to act like me, you have to do what I do? Or are we following people that point to Christ? What about us? It's good to have convictions. It's good to say in my own life, based on the word of God, I've chosen to live this way. But we need to be careful when we put that on others and say, well, you need to live this way too, because that's what I feel. If that's not what God's word has said. Don't use your personal convictions as a club to judge others. We need to hit the brakes when arguments are more important than obedience. 
Look at verses 16 to 22 here. This is a very technical argument he gets into, but I'll sum it up in a second here. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Now, look, here's what's going on. They believed very strongly. It was one of God's law. Thou shalt not lie. Don't bear false witness. Don't lie. And so they wanted to be very careful to make sure that they weren't lying and they wanted to lead the people to not lie. And so what happened was they came up with this very intricate system of promises. I had this conversation with one of my kids the other day. I was asking one of them if they had done something and they said, I promise. And I said, you shouldn't have to say that. You should never have to say, I promise. Because the words, I did it, are a promise or the words I didn't do it you're already promising you shouldn't hold this higher standard to the words I promise and that's what they were doing they had this whole list of if you swear by this well it's more important to keep that than if you swore by this if you swore by this thing down here ah, if you break it no big deal The irony is that it was leading people to make false promises this whole system that the Pharisees had laid out to make these these oaths had led people to make false oaths because they said, well, this is less important than this. And Jesus comes along and this is what he says. You're missing the point. You've missed the whole point. You're arguing over all these nitpicky little things when the point is you're supposed to be truthful and honest before God in all things. They were too caught up with finding ways around it. All of this took the focus off of God. We need to hit the brakes. And and this so often happens, I find, when people are maturing in their faith and they get into theology. And theology is good. It is rich. I would never downplay the importance of theology and theological learning and theological education. It is powerful and it is good. I love sitting and studying theology with other people. But here's what I find so often People start arguing over these nitpicky little things and missing out on what is most important. Hit the brakes when arguments are more important than total obedience. We need to hit the brakes when personal preferences become more important than God's word. And here we get to the center part of this this. Uh, chiastic structure. Here's the heart and soul of this passage. Look at verses 23 to 24. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. What a powerful word picture that is. You strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. 
In the Old Testament, God had proclaimed certain foods as clean or unclean, certain animals as clean or unclean. Gnats were an unclean animal. They were not to eat them. Now, this is kind of silly to some point because I don't think anybody would have been like, oh, I just feel like eating gnats today. So it's not, but they were in a larger category of other animals and insects that fit these certain uh, characteristics, and so they applied to the gnat. But I don't think anybody really tried to eat gnats. But the religious leaders were so careful. We can't allow anything unclean in. And so sometimes if, if they were careful, they might put a, a filter over the top of their cup or they might strain it through a filter to make sure get out every single little gnat so I don't get this tiny little bit of, of uncleanness within me. And Jesus says, okay, so you've got that cup with the filter on it to make sure no gnats get through. You've got a camel sitting on your cup and your mouth is wide taking in the camel, which by the way was also an unclean animal. You're so concerned over the nitpicky little details that you've forgotten the giant camel. He's pointing out how foolish they are in this. And the specific example he gives here is is them tithing the herbs out of their garden. Now, farmers were supposed to give a tenth of their crop, okay? So again, there was a debate in Jesus' day, does this go to everything in the garden? What about our herbs? What about the tiniest of herbs? So understand, they're, they're taking a little bit of herbs out of their garden and they're proportioning them out and taking a tenth to say, I tithe even the herbs of my garden. Look how righteous I am. And Jesus says, that's great. It's great that you're so concerned to be obedient and tithing. He doesn't say it's bad to want to obey in that way. But he says, but Don't pay attention to the tiny little herbs and miss the gigantic subject of mercy and justice and faithfulness, which are all over the Word of God. We get caught up in these little things and we want to argue about them and pick them apart. And sometimes it's a huge distraction and it leads us to feel like we don't need to obey these massive portions of Scripture that talk about the more important items. This here is the center of the woes. The Pharisees were so concerned with these minute details. Instead of having hearts that were submissive to God to say, I will live for your glory. I will live for justice. I will live for mercy. I will show grace to others. We need to hit the brakes when we're following someone who emphasizes minor details while ignoring major themes in Scripture. And I do want to pause here for a second. I've seen a lot of Christians that get very mature in their faith. And they learn a lot about the Word of God, and that's powerful. But then they're mean and vicious and cruel to other people who are struggling or are less informed than they think they are. It's good to know your systematic theologies. It's good to be able to quote Augustine and Calvin. But if you're not showing love and grace to other people, you're missing the point. Theology is not a club to beat people over the head with. It should lead them to the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We need to hit the brakes when we're following people like this or when we are acting this way. 
another time we need to hit the brakes. When outward effort replaces inward holiness. Look at verses 25 to 26. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. My youngest is now eight years old, but I remember the sippy cup days. It's a long period of time as a parent in the sippy cup days. As you get older, you call them travel mugs. It's really the same thing, <laughs> if you're honest. And, and for some of you, this, this story may relate to your travel mugs. But I remember as, as a parent with, with sippy cups and with young kids, like there were times in our minivan that we'd go to clean it out and you'd find a sippy cup that had milk in it in ancient history. And you're looking at it going, oh no, I should just throw it away right now. And there's something, I don't know if this is a guy thing, there's something within you. You can't help it, right? You got to open it. And you got to smell it. And there were times when you open up that curdled milk and you go, oh, so nasty. Now imagine, because this is what Jesus is talking about. Imagine I take that sippy cup into the house and go, oh, my kids can't drink out of this. And I get out my best dish soap and a brand new washcloth and I wipe the outside of that sippy cup off and put the lid on it and give it to my child. You wouldn't do it. And yet Jesus says that's exactly what these guys are doing. They're so focused on cleaning the outside, on fixing up how they look to the world that they haven't dealt with the rottenness inside. This is what happens when we focus on outward righteousness instead of allowing God through Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit and the power of God's word to come in and do that heart surgery that only he can do. And we don't like that because it hurts. It's hard to clean out the disgusting sippy cup. That's why I, I will confess I've thrown numerous sippy cups away because I didn't want to wash them. They were gross. But Jesus doesn't just throw us away. We come and we bow before him in faith. And he does the heart surgery that only he can do. Because the truth is only Christ can cleanse us from the inside out. Listen to Romans 1, 16 and 17. Paul writes, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's the good news about Jesus Christ. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. There's the cleansing of the inside of the cup. And the reasons that the Pharisees are missing that is because they refuse to bow before Jesus. They're too stuck on themselves. Friends, we need to hit the brakes when what we're following is just a list of rules, outward actions, traditions that make us look good, maybe even make us feel good, but they do nothing to actually change our hearts. The sixth woe, we need to hit the brakes when reputation becomes more important 
than righteousness. Look at verse 27. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. I learned some things about this idea of whitewashed tombs. I've always heard that it was just foolish to whitewash a tomb, right? Because inside it's full of dead man's bone, dead men's bones anyway, and that that's what Jesus is talking about. But what's really interesting is that around the time of the Passover, which this is, it is, all these people were coming into Jerusalem, right? They wouldn't necessarily know at all times where the graves were. And you couldn't go near a grave and still come into the city at Passover because you had to be clean. And the tombs were ceremonially unclean. So they would whitewash the tombs as a warning. They would whitewash the tombs so you could see them from a distance and go, oh, I'm going to stay away from there. But evidently, that tradition of this thing serving as a warning also became, well, while we're at it, we can make them pretty too. I mean, we want to honor those that have passed away. So they would whitewash them and decorate them and make them look good. But all of it was this idea of inside I'm unclean, stay away. And Jesus is telling the Pharisees, you're whitewashing tombs to try to keep people away. And yet you are the ones bringing the filth. You're the ones making people unclean. You're missing the point. We need to hit the brakes when we're following someone who wants to look good, but inside has no life in them. And we need to hit the brakes when we're spending too much time on external things and not enough time being made alive by our Savior, Jesus Christ. Finally, the seventh woe. We need to hit the brakes when anything is more important than Christ. See, Jesus really ends where he began. Look at verses 29 through 32. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then. And complete what your ancestors started. They acted like they were honoring the Old Testament prophets, but who killed most of the Old Testament prophets? The people of God did. These people who thought they were so great. These people from whom the Pharisees and the other religious leaders are descendants, and they're proud of being their descendants, and yet they're the very descendants of the people who killed the prophets. And what Jesus is saying is, you think you're better than them. Oh, we would never have done that. Have you ever thought that? If I was alive in Jesus' day, I wouldn't have been the people shouting, crucify him. I would have understood who Jesus is. No. We need to check our hearts and say, I do the same things. And the irony is these Pharisees thought they were so much better, and yet in a few days they're going to arrest Jesus and have him put on a Roman cross. The ultimate prophet, the actual Messiah, the Son of God, and they're going to put him to death. You see, it's all about Jesus. They've made their own personal righteousness and their own authority and their own reputation as more important than Jesus Christ. Christ. Look at verses 33 to 36. You snakes, you brood of vipers. 
How will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all this will come on this generation. See, we think... We're so great. And we think God agrees because it seems like he's not doing anything about it. Well, look how great we are. Look at how impressive we are. And God must think so too because he's just blessing us. And yet Jesus says this warning to them. The judgment is coming. Your greatness will not be allowed to go on forever. The greatness of God will come and sit in judgment on you. A few decades after this, the Romans will march into the city of Jerusalem and smash it to the ground. And the people, all of them, great and small within the city, will have to flee. And the powerful temple that they thought was so important to them is going to be completely obliterated and removed. And the judgment of God will come on this generation. Living for anything other than Jesus Christ leads to judgment. It's easy to overlook or skip or or ignore the judgment of God. Bill read about it in the psalm this morning. They would sing those in public worship about God's judgment that was coming. But we want to skip over that today. I don't want judgment. I just want to feel good. But God is holy and he is righteous. And living for anything other than Jesus Christ will ultimately lead to judgment because we can't fix ourselves. If we trust in anything, even our own ideas other than Christ, we are bowing down before idols rather than the only holy God. These are seven warnings here to hit the brakes. And throughout all of it, there's this common theme. Do you truly understand the word of God? Are you truly reading it and letting it inform you? Or are we putting our own ideas and sitting in judgment or picking and choosing from God's word? That's why as a church, we believe in walking through the word of God, even through tough passages like this. Because it sits in judgment on us, not the other way around. But I do want to look at these last couple verses. Because Jesus is the ultimate cure for all hypocrisy. If the core of hypocrisy, as I said earlier, is living for the wrong audience, performing in our life this acts of righteousness to look good for others, then we need to stop and ask ourselves, who am I truly living for? Modern culture, modern society says, don't just live for others. We need to be more authentic. You should be authentic. And what do they mean by authentic? You should live for yourself. It's more authentic to live for you as the audience. And we have developed a culture where I am both the performer and the audience and nobody else matters. I do what I want when I want. And we are just as much the hypocrites as the Pharisees and religious leaders of Christ's day. We need to live for the audience of Jesus Christ. The one who is holy and righteous who judges sin and saves the sinner, who 
whose gospel does the heart surgery that we cannot do, and he changes us from the inside out. Look at verses 37 to 39, and I want you to listen to the heart of Jesus here. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord was a phrase that meant, you're the Messiah. You're the one who can save me. And Jesus tells these people who thought they had it all together, you won't understand a thing until you start there. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And one day, Scripture tells us the Pharisees, the scribes, the greatest sinner, the most outwardly religious person, All of us will bow before the throne of God and we will say, you are Lord. You are Christ. You are the Messiah. But scripture also tells us in that day when Christ comes back and every knee will bow and every tongue will make that confession, it will be too late for the vast majority of people. Now is the time to hear these woes and hit the brakes in our own lives and fall on our face before Jesus Christ. We need to ask ourselves where we need to hit the brakes in our own lives. How are we doing these very things? Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are holy as we sang this morning perfectly righteous. Your standard is the absolute truth. Your righteousness is the absolute standard of righteousness. Your word tells us what is true and untrue, what is right and what is wrong. And God, we live in a world where we want to hear and we are being convinced that we should come up with those things for ourselves. And Father, the arrogance of the Pharisees is that they thought they could make their own definitions and force those on others. God, forgive us for the many ways we do the exact same thing. Keep our eyes locked on your son, Jesus Christ, that we might fall on our faces each and every day proclaiming, you are the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And may we hear the tender heart of our Savior who says, come, I long to gather you. I long for you to come and be with me, to be saved by me. And may we have the warning of the hard hearts of these Pharisees and religious leaders who thought that they were so right and so perfect and they completely missed the point. And Father, may we humbly accept that your word says judgment will come. That's part of your righteousness. It's part of your justice. And so I pray now that we would accept the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it would change us from the inside out, that we would reach out to others with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they may be changed, that on the day that Christ comes, they may welcome you as their Savior. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.